Heterodorks, heterodox dorks. All right. Hey, Turfs and Trannies. This is Nina Paley turfing at you, and you are listening to Heterodorks. And I'm Corinna. I am the only true trans on the planet now. I've, I've defeated all the others. Our special guest today is... Karen Davis. Yeah, Woo! yeah, yeah. This is so this is so great. And I have to thank the two of you for your patience. I'm new to all of this, particularly like the online thing. And I really am grateful that you guys kept at it to interview me. I, I so appreciate that. So yeah, I'm taking a taking a momentary break from your kid and right to talk to Nina and Karina and it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, so um, you are beloved on Spinster. And oh, thank you. Oh, wow. And the, I don't know, the radical feminist online enclaves that I frequent. Awesome. I'm so glad to know that. Wow. I found you a different way. YouTube recommended your videos to me. And when I watched your first one, Karen, I thought, this woman has Magdalene Burns's energy. And I haven't seen anyone else have that sort of charisma on YouTube for a long time. Well, thank you. You know, when I first saw Mag- Magdalene Burns, I thought, oh, my God, she's she's a goddess. How, you know, where does she get this courage from? And you're right about the charisma. And, you know, I thought she reminded me of um, like punk bands from the, the late 80s, early 90s. And they always well, not always, but they frequently had these tiny little women playing the bass. And it's like the bass was gigantic on this tiny little woman, but she was all over that bass. She was just tearing it up because that's the kind of woman she was. And I was like, wow, Magdalene Burns. And and I was very new to this. And I discovered her because I was trying to find dissenting voices to the, to the trans, uh, to the trans narrative. And I was like, Oh my God. She's awesome. And I thought there have to be like other people. And it's like, no, no, there aren't. It was just her. And so my admiration for her grew because I realized she's doing this by herself with very little support and catching a lot of crap from other people. Yeah. She really put herself out there. And I remember on Twitter, or I should say, I guess the bird app, she attracted Mm. a lot of heat from critics and she just had this attitude of, come at me. I'm not bothered by it. Yeah. She just, she just she had, said, like, infinite chill. I'd rather, yeah. what did she say? I'd rather be a, a what than a fucking liar. I'd rather be rude. I would rather be rude than liar. a fucking liar. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, you kind of have to be. I mean, one of the reasons I started the channel was because the magnitude of the dissembling and the lying and the half truth and the quarter truth and no truth was, you know, starting to wear on me. And I'm like, I need someplace where I can talk about reality. I've mentioned this on the channel. Like my husband was getting exhausted and I'm like, okay, so I need a community or I need to put this someplace else. And so that's why I started the channel because it is really hard to maintain that that grip on reality when there's so much coming at you that's false. 
So you're you're also active in other feminist activities, right? Are you active in WHRC? No, no, I was on um, I was on twice, and it starts really early for me. I mean, because they're over in the UK and they start at nine a.m. I believe, and I'm so not a morning person, and. It's like, I think, I think they're doing wonderful work. I think that they're brilliant and inspiring, but I cannot get up that early on Saturday morning. I'm like, and if I am, I'm, I'm not good. Are you involved in American feminist projects? I want to be. Now that I've gotten vaxxed and the restrictions are lifting, um, there are quite a few feminist and radical feminist organizations in, in my immediate area. And there is a radical feminist meetup that I would love to go to. And I want to start one here in the town that I live in. As Mm -hmm. a bicyclist, Mm -hmm. I really want to know what part of the country you're in. Because if you're Uh, within bicycling distance of me, I would like to do a ride. Oh, wow. I am in one of the worst places for cycling in the country that's not Florida. There is exactly, there's one ride here. I live about three blocks from a state park and, and then there's the bikeway across the river and it's nuts, nuts. If you get up early enough and by early, I mean like insanely early for me, like five, you can actually like, you know, ride relatively safely. But after like 7am, forget about it. Yeah. It's something. No, yes. now, now I live in central Illinois and the bike in here is oh, great. But I guess hilly. You, No, central, southern Illinois is hilly. Central Illinois is pretty flat. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that was actually, you know, my personal burning <laughs> question for you because it's like, oh, she bikes? I do. <laughs> I do. So I have some questions and topics. All right. So our our last conversation, Corinna and I were talking about the uh, the Amy Stevens case. Okay. On a minute. Yeah. So you know about this case where Amy Stevens worked at a funeral home and yes. started cross dressing. Yeah. Got fired and sued. So Wolf wrote an amicus brief, siding with the funeral home. That's- Sign with the funeral home, right? There seems to be a split among feminists that I know mm-hmm. where some of them really disagreed with Wolf. And okay. some of them are very upset with Wolf for doing this. I still am not upset with Wolf for doing this. I don't have a problem mm-hmm. with it. But anyway, Corinna and I got in this long conversation was Amy Stevens fired for being trans. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said Amy Stevens was fired for being a man violating the dress code and Corinna says though he was fired for being a man and then we like wandered into this territory where I said something which I knew was politically incorrect mm-hmm. I said like people who are aggrieved and at a funeral home they may just it, it's like ask it might be asking them too much it may not be fair to them to have to deal with a cross-dresser while they're trying to have their funeral. 
I, I knew that this was not politically correct, right? To say like, you know, the customers won't like it. Um, so he should be fired because the customers won't like it. I knew that was, you know, a real iffy thing to say. But I have been thinking about it more. And I have been thinking about autogynephilia. Mm -hmm. And I have been thinking that if you have an employee, and Amy Stevens was a late transitioning autogynephile, mm -hmm. right? So if you have an employee that is, shall we say, perving on or sexually harassing your female customers, you want to get rid of them. And at a funeral home, customers are extremely vulnerable. A woman who is in that position, who is having to deal with, you know, burying a loved one, is in no position to uh, do anything about a guy who is using this as an opportunity to get his rocks off because he finds a way to cross a boundary. Now, the thing with being trans is, being trans, whatever that means, is you know definitely not all trans, right? Not all trans are autogynephilic perverts, right? But some are. And I'm just thinking like, well, at what point is this being trans and at what point is it sexual harassment? And like, I'm just, I know that what I'm saying is really politically incorrect, but I'm not willing to let go of it because this is an opportunity for someone to really be violating women's boundaries in a situation where they can't do anything about it. And the only tools we have for describing it are being trans. And I just, I'm not willing to just put that down. So that's my current thinking. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is that my father was a funeral director. And yeah, yeah, he was. Um, so when I read about that, I was thinking, what would my father do? And I'm like, never would have gotten any running room because my father would have fired the guy. Um, there would have been no discussion. And you're right in saying that from, with, from the funeral director's perspective, the comfort of the bereaved families is paramount there there is there is nothing else that's what they're there for and funerals are expensive and so he would not do anything that would discomfort the family if there was anything that could possibly discomfort the family it could not happen he would leave home at you know two in the morning or three in the morning to go to the hospital or to go to someone's house to pick up people's loved ones so their business lives and dies, as it were, on the comfort of the bereaved family. And I was also thinking about this from the trans individual's perspective, and it, it's kind of hard for me to put myself in that mindset. I've been reading quite a few studies about, well, not about late transitioners specifically, but about who transitions and when. Generally, if you look at Blanchard's work and you look at the other, my, my favorite guy lately, Dr. Richard F. Doctor, <laughs> these guys are predominantly autogynophiles. And, and Blanchard said, when was it? I, I want to say 2010, but I might be a little off. He said, as of then, 75% of the men who transitioned were autogynophiles. And he suspects that it has gone up. Now, like I said, I might be wrong on that year. But basically, he said that the vast majority of these guys are autogynophiles. But one of the other things that's in the 
that's in the literature, and this might irritate some of the some of the people that, that are my fans here, is that for some of these cats, by the time they get to be middle-aged, particularly 50 and over, the sexual component is not as strong, and they actually cross-dress for stress relief, which I cannot understand because women's clothes are not terribly relaxing, but, you know, whatever. And I couldn't help but think, just for a moment, it's like, what if this guy doesn't get off on this sexually anymore? And what if this is a way for him to deal with some of the very strong and distressing emotional forces that he may very well have had to deal with for his entire life? Now, I don't discount the sexual component of it at all. Not at all. But I also wonder, for some of these guys if this isn't something that they really believe is essential. But at the same time, as someone who's self-employed, I don't think what they, what I don't think that anyone else's needs for self-expression supersede the right of someone's business to succeed. And I don't think it supersedes the right of someone to conduct their business in a way that makes sense for them. I think I also I think it's a thorny issue. And uh, Nina, you were talking about the sexual component. See, that's that's a whole other thing. When I when I read that, it, it makes me you know it makes my head explode because I'm like, people, the the guys who do this are saying this is why they do it. They're saying it. This is not coming from us. It's not coming from women. It's not coming from turfs. It's coming from the guys who actually do it. They are saying that this is why they do it. And why, why would we ignore that if they are saying, oh, no, this is totally why I do it? What, who am I to come along and say, oh, no, no, it's just for your authenticity. And they're like, no, no, it's, I mean, authenticity, yeah, but it's also like my weenus. So, hey, um, believe that. And I, I don't think anybody listening to this would disagree with you, Karen. But mm-hmm. just in case they do, anybody right at this moment can go look at any trans forum on Reddit and see that what you're saying is 100% true, because I guarantee that at least one of the top five comments on any of those forums right now is laying out a scenario just like what you're talking about. Right. And see, the other issue, and I think this is, this is unfortunate, um, that this isn't more prominent in the conversation when we're talking about who is trans. Blanchard talked about this. Uh, Dr. Richard F. Doctor talked about this, that there's a small percentage of trans-identified males who don't do it for the purposes of sexual gratification. In the study I looked at from 1992, it was 6%. I want to say in the study they did 20 years before that, it was about the same, like 4% or 5%. So the vast majority of these guys are autogynophiles who do it for purposes of sexual gratification. And your chances of encountering a trans-identified male who is a homosexual transsexual and not a transvestic fetishist are pretty small. Usually, according to the literature anyway, these are men or boys who, for whom this has been part of their identity for their entire life. It's, it's something that they grew up with. They were five. There was no sexual charge, essentially. It's like, this is how they feel most 
correct or how they feel the most right or what they feel is the most authentic. And generally, they're not waiting until they're in their 40s and 50s to, you know, to start dressing in a more feminine manner. And that's a completely different group of people. And I think this is a conversation that we need to have as well. But the two are fused at this point. And I think it does what I call the sane trans people uh, a tremendous disservice. Like what Corinna and I were arguing about is, is it okay to fire someone just because they're trans? Well, no, because that's like firing someone just because they're gay and that's not right. And But I'm I was thinking about it since and I'm like, well, is it okay to fire someone because they're an autogynophile? And if they are an autogynophile, is it, how about if they like don't practice their autogynophilia at work where there are customers, right? Like where, where there are women. And I'm just sort of going like, yeah, I think maybe it actually, it is okay to fire someone. Is it okay to fire someone, you know, for, for other paraphilias? It's okay to fire someone for being a pedophile even if they're not actually, you know, doing stuff, I'm like, yeah, sorry. And I'm, I'm playing, I'm sort of, I know, I know I'm like stepping out on thin ice, right? Like I, I know that. Well, can, may I, um, in one of the, one of the schools that I taught in before COVID, there were two trans identified males. Um, one of whom I did not know was a trans identified male until I'd been there for three years and he forgot to shave his arms. And, you know, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, and this person was lovely um, and nice to me and just a good worker, no problems at all. And I was like, well, there'd be no reason to fire this individual because they're doing the job. And the, the transness, obviously, it, it, it got by me um, you know, for years. So, and this person probably a, a little taller than me, but with a very small frame and a little, you know, small hands, small hands, big feet. Um, but, you know, a very feminine face. Basically, if he hadn't forgotten to shave his arms that day, I still wouldn't have had any idea. But the point is that he did the job and he did the job well. And this was a job working with special needs kids. And, you know, the the kids, it it was fine. Absolutely fine. The other individual, I remember the day they hired this person. And I thought, why are they hiring people who look like porn stars? What's going on here? And there was something about this person that struck me as peculiar. And I'm like, oh, I'm only here two days a week. I don't, I don't care. And it's like, as long as they do the job, I have, I have no complaints. And, you know, and I was like, okay, so maybe she's, she was, in, she's a stripper and she's cleaned up her act. I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't care. And then I, I was in this individual's room one day when they said, and their voice, their voice dropped, it dropped all the way down to the the masculine level and said, I have a fetish. And then like went back up to where it's normal. And, you know, and then he laughed and he goes for makeup, I love lip gloss. And I was like, oh Jesus Christ, get me out of here. And I'm like, just start teaching. (laughs) Just like whatever this is going on over here, 
just start teaching. And I was thinking, should I say something to the, and I'm like, nah, nah, because I didn't know at the time because I was only in this person's presence for half an hour once a week. And I was mostly focused on the kids. And so I'm like, well, this is a weird thing to say. Teachers can be weird. So maybe it's just like a weird teacher thing. And then one day I was leaving and I was watching this individual walk down the hall. And I was like, what's familiar about that? What's familiar about that? And I'm like, my husband walks the same way. Oh my God. And I'm like, that's right. My husband is a small man with big feet. And I'm like, he does the little guy Bigfoot walk. That's what it is. And I was like, no, the hips aren't swaying. The hips are just, you know, and I was like, oh my God. And I'm like, okay, well, there we go. But again, the question is, is this person doing the job? If they are doing the job, whatever discomfort I may have, I will just have to deal with that. If the AGP prevents them from doing the job or if they are inappropriate on the job, then, it, of course, it would be okay to fire them. But for that, that's a, that's a tough one. I can see both sides. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the saying, I have a fetish to a classroom full of kids, even if you're making a joke about it, that's pretty questionable. It was indeed. And I thought, okay, well, if I see anything else this weird, I'm going to have to say something about it because the kids are special needs and they're very vulnerable. And it's like, you can't afford to have all kinds of strange crap going on in front of these children. Not to mention the fact that if anything should come to light and I'm in the room, then I could be liable as well. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of not for that. I'm sure there are plenty of autogynophiles who really do keep it in the house. You know, it's like the big Friday night and you take out the dress and the, you know, the underwear and all that. And you can swan about and have a glass of wine and just, or whatever it is and, you know, have a great time or, you know, whatever. I don't have a problem with them. It's the ones that like, you know, want to drag all us, all of us in that those are the individuals that I have an issue with. I, I absolutely agree with you. I've had very close relationships with autogonophiles in my life. Wow. And yeah. Uh, I've had, yeah. <laughs> and Until you callously fired them, Nina. I fired them, yes. <laughs> because I actually employ all of my friends. Mm-hmm. So watch, watch your step, Corinna. Right, I know. Anyway, and now I say it's okay to fire people for being trans, so you're in trouble. Um, (laughs) But if you fire me, you'll have to edit all the podcasts. And also play your voice. I'll have to play you on the podcast. It will be a lot more difficult. But, you know, you're doing the job, Corinna. You're doing the job, so it's okay. (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) But anyway, anyway, um, yeah, they had boundaries. Like, they didn't do this shit all over the place. They they did it with me because back in the day, I was into that, which is why mm-hmm. I think it's hilarious when people tell me how transphobic I am and, you know, how I should meet some trans people. It's like, you have no idea. <laughs> I mean, if anything, I was transphilic, not transphobic. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely know autogynophiles exist that have decent boundaries Um, but but as it gets framed as a civil rights issue 
you know, then they, they frame that like having boundaries is like being in the closet. Yeah. And that's where the problem comes in. As I've read about this and I've read about, you know, part of the fetish being accepted as a woman and seen as a woman, once you give the fetish the force of law, then, you know, we're all forced to affirm this individual by allowing them into our spaces. And it's like, well, see, that, that's not an issue. I mean, that, or that should not be an issue. If you're in a personal relationship with someone and this is, or a sexual relationship, and this is part of your, your, your play, then that's cool. Um, I could see how that, that could be kind of fun. But once it starts going further than that, and now women cease to exist as legal entities, now we've got some problems. Yeah. So that's how I feel about the Amy Stevens situation. And there don't, I think that there are like no legal tools. There's no like language for addressing what the actual problem was. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I was like, what, what would you frame this as? Although if I were the owner of the funeral home, I, I was trying to figure out what I would do in this. And, and I thought, well, you would have to have a discussion with this individual and say, look, if there are, there are no, you might want to try to put some boundaries on it. It's like, if we don't have a family in here, if we're not running a funeral on this day, if you want to dress this way, that's fine. But you know, if we are actually running a funeral, I would appreciate it if, you know, whatever, and try to work with the situation that way. And then if, if that were unworkable, then the person would have, the person would have to go. Oh, I guess if you had a smart lawyer, you could say, well, that's not firing someone for being trans. That's firing for someone uh, or that's firing someone for not following work, workplace protocol. But see, that's, that's, that's what I that's what I said to Corinna. And Corinna said, no, he was fired for being trans. You know that he was fired for being trans. And well, maybe I, yeah. I admit, Nina, I could be wrong. It could be that there has never in the history of America ever been a case where people were fired for a technical reason, even though there were ulterior motives for firing them. It could be that that never happens in America. It seems like employment case law indicates otherwise, but in this case, it might be different. So again, like, what do you do with, like, do you just sum up this situation of as, okay, he's fired for being trans and, you know, in a liberal society, we don't do that given given the diversity that there is of what we call being trans that being trans is like a huge you know it, it there there are some people that are for whom it is a fetish who are violating boundaries under the umbrella of being trans um whereas there are others you know for whom it, you know they're not uh and they you know, may still face, it's like these, it's such a complex thing. And there has to be some way that an employer can do something about an employee like this. Well, we're running into some major problems up ahead, because the definition of trans that I understood in the 90s when I transitioned, that isn't even applicable now. In fact, to, to use the definition of what trans meant when I transitioned is now considered 
a form of bigotry, believe it or not. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. So the definition has expanded so much that people who are, uh, you know, there, there was a thread yesterday on Twitter, on the, on, sorry, on the bird app, <laughs> uh, that, that was uh, trans men are men. And if you looked at the thread, there were any number of female bodied individuals with extremely feminine presentation, complete with makeup, complete with clothes that were designed for women to wear, asserting that they are just as legitimate trans men and therefore as legitimate, legitimate men as any male-born person. And it, when, when you have the word trans, and, and it goes both ways, there's also um, pe people who are born male that, that make the same sort of assertions. If the definition of trans is that wide, it, does, it doesn't mean anything. And you're just creating a label without there being any sort of uh, performance or action necessary to, to demonstrate any form of legitimacy or, or I, I should say sincerity or commitment, that uh, somebody is actually trying to make a material change to who they are. So you're, you're creating this uh, entitlement for anybody to just claim that they're the opposite sex and that has legal force. Like we're, we're, we're at that point right now with the Title IX clarifications that the Biden administration has published, and we're moving towards that towards the with the Equality Act, and it, it's just towards the obliteration of all meaning of sex. Sorry, we all know this. I'm just ranting. Oh no, I, I think it's important that you articulate that because one of the things that is confounding the whole conversation about this and confounding everyone's thinking is exactly what you were saying, that trans has it's gotten to the point where it doesn't mean anything. When I first came to this a couple years ago and I first heard the term genderqueer, I was like, I have known one genderqueer person in my life. And he was very androgynous and very intentionally androgynous. Um, he had a lot of issues, but, you know, and he was actually, it was very interesting. He was one of the manliest guys I had ever encountered, but he knew what he looked like because at this point we were in our mid thirties and I'm like, you know, you're a skinny androgynous dude that looks like a woman from just like across the room. You do this on purpose. And I was like, huh, okay, well, that's cool. Awesome. Um, and that was really the end of the story. And I thought he might be gay, but he always had girlfriends and he always had like, you know, very like ultra femme girlfriends. And I'm like, all right, whatever these two are doing, it doesn't matter to me. He's just, <laughs> you know, and then I kept hearing the term like so-and-so is genderqueer. And I was like, oh, so they must be like very androgynous or whatever. It's like, no, it's just a guy. It's just like a regular looking dude. It looks like, he, so he's genderqueer in his soul. I can't see his soul. I can't see inside his brain. I see a guy in a t-shirt and cargo shorts. He looks about as genderqueer as, you know, the guy behind him in the t-shirt and the cargo shorts. And then, you know, so I was like, ah, I'm just not going to think about it because it's ridiculous. It's like, it's so ridiculous. It will fall apart on its own. And it has not, it has gained momentum. And the term trans has become so big at this point that it really is meaningless. And I've, I've seen that online where you have, these women 
And some of them are actually like petite and curvy and they have long hair and makeup. And they're wearing not just dresses, but like super femi dresses with like little flowers and like, you know, it's like, you're a man? You're kidding. Really? Okay. Uh, where? How? Who is supposed to know this by looking at you? And some of them, they have the sweet little feminine voices. And I'm like, okay, well, I just won't deal with you then because you are a whole pack of problems. And for people like yourself, Karina, I'm sure this has got to be very frustrating. It was, but I, I have yeah. to admit something, which is that even the definition when I transitioned, actually at its root still had the same fuzziness to it. Because the idea that somebody materially changes who they are because they've had surgery is actually sort of crazy in a way. Like, you do change to some extent. Like, uh, I can stand next to any other man and say I'm physically different in some pretty important uh, respects. But the idea itself that surgery actually changes who you are doesn't make sense. And I think that original lack of clarity about what trans means has always been there. It's just that mm. the door was always open a, a little crack and it's just gotten wider and wider and wider. Mm. Yeah. And it seems that among psychologists, it was perfectly clear. They differentiated between transvestites and transsexuals. And they, in the 1992 study that I was talking about, they talked about overlap, but they weren't really clear about how much overlap there was. And it would be very interesting to talk to uh, Dr. Doctor. He is still active with uh, WPATH and to find out how much overlap there is. And if there's enough overlap so that these terms should be elided or that they should not be. And if there should be, you know, it, it, and if there, you know, part of the general conversation should be what trans really means. What does it really mean? And I like what you said about, you know, not, it doesn't change who you are um, because it doesn't. And I'm sure that's very painful for, you know, for people. Um, in the 1992 study, was it this one? It was either something by Blanchard or Dr. Doctor, where they were talking about how the autogynophilia can trigger gender dysphoria. Mm. And not for all of them but for a significant portion, I don't remember how many, but, you know, being so attached to this idea of oneself as a woman, you know, would eventually um, become corrosive and the guy would, you know, experience a lot of distress and want to undergo surgery. And that's one of the reasons why you have the late transitioners as well. We don't talk about sex well, in this society, we don't do reality very well. We don't talk about feelings or emotions. We don't think well as a society. And this issue has so much complexity that it's like we are too immature as a society to manage it. We're like dull seventh graders as a group. And this is not, this is subject matter you would not cover with that class. You would save it for, you know, your brighter and more mature class. And that's not America right now. My friend Grace introduced this term and I'm, I'm trying to remember 
how, how the term goes, but it's this idea of sort of this toxic understanding. It's like this idea that once you start hearing it, it kind of replicates like a virus in your brain and it takes over your brain. I worry that for young people, the idea that you can change your sex, and that's with some air quotes around it, which is false, you can't change your sex. But when they're exposed to that idea, when they don't have the maturity to understand what transition actually involves and and what realistic outcomes actually look like, that it's a sort of a, a worm that gets in their head that gets them focused on something that can't actually be consummated. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, talking to a couple of parents of uh, trans-identified kids, kids with the rapid-onset gender dysphoria, and they're very worried. A couple of the parents that I'll be having on the channel have 17-year-old daughters who identify as gay men. That just blows my mind. I, I don't understand how that works. The thing that they're most worried about is that these girls will have the mastectomy, they'll start taking testosterone, and, you know, they, from, from what they're saying right now, they also want to have genital surgery, and the parents are terrified because they're about to lose control of them because, you know, they're about to be 18. But the, the girls are also rather immature. Neither of them have dated. Neither of them have ever made out with a boy or, or, or with a girl or anything it's and i'm like i did when i was that age and it was amazing and the thing is i don't think anyone should be deprived of having a healthy young body there is nothing like it it's pretty freaking awesome but apart from that even if someone is uncomfortable in their body the you know the the hormones can cause a lot of problems the surgeries have terribly high complication rates spending your youth as a medical patient undergoing procedures that can kick you right into the middle of middle age from your 20s with the arthritis and the osteoporosis and the high blood pressure and the uterine atrophy and all of that. You would have to sell that to kids because I think that as for older people who have had maybe a thing or two go wrong with their bodies, they're like, yeah, no, that's okay. You can keep, you can keep all of that. Thank you very much. And I think you're very right about the unrealistic outcomes. When you go to the surgeon's pages, I know this doesn't occur to kids, but the surgeons are only going to show the things that worked out. <laughs> They're only going to show the good results. They're not going to show the disasters. And if you're looking at some guy who said, oh, you know, I've done 10,000 phalloplasties, like, well, that's probably a lie. But you've only got, you've got nine up. Where are the other ones? it's harder and harder to find information about how these surgeries go wrong online. Um, you really have to know which questions to ask. And I'm sure most teenagers do not know which questions to ask to find out about, you know, what can really happen if this does not work out right. Do you know Scott Nugent? I know of Scott Nugent. Hold on. I'm at the turn the light on. We've got sunset happening here. Yes, Scott is very vocal about uh, the problems that one can encounter with phalloplasty. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised people are still pursuing it. It sounds really, really grim. Well, 
what amazed me, see, I, when I heard about it, I thought there's no way this can work. And then I saw some pictures and I was like, oh, well, look at that. Well, that that's kind of real looking. And then I started reading about it. And I had, I didn't know that in order to do the phalloplasty, they really do have to take all of your, all of your female reproductive organs out. I thought, well, that's, that's pretty terrible. That's not good for women. And you still have a woman's body. So you have a woman's body that's now minus all of her reproductive organs. And that causes all kinds of problems. I mean, it, it can cause problems with your internal organs. I mean, you can have, um, your organs can shift and that leads to all kinds of all kinds of trouble. It also predisposes women to dementia, particularly early onset dementia. But apart uh, that's, from that's that's correlation. It's correlated it? with that. It's not it's okay. not correlation. It's correlation. I, I say this as somebody who had a hysterectomy a few years ago. And ah. you're absolutely right about things shifting around. It's it's no joke. Yeah. Uh, I am doing so much better. I really needed that hysterectomy. <laughs> well, and see, I, knew someone, I knew two women who had the hysterectomy. They were both fine. The doctor tried to sell me one to get rid of my fibroids. And I did not want to have a hysterectomy. And he said that my fibroids were too big for the, the uterine embolization. And that was not true. As a matter of fact, when I had the uterine embolization, they were actually bigger than they had been when I went to the guy who was trying to sell me the... Uh, the hysterectomy and they actually shrunk. So they shrunk to about the size they were when I went to the guy who was trying to sell me the hysterectomy. It seemed it was a, a roll of the dice. I didn't want to take because I, I, I tend not to be lucky. I tend to be the one that gets the weird side effects. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want, I, I'll be in that group for the, for the, the women who, you know, all of a sudden, they have problems with the lower back and the legs. They can, now they can't walk. And I'm like, that'll be me. No. Oof. Yeah. I just, so, so here's some, uh, some woman talk. Uh, I had a, <laughs> close your ears, Corinna. I had a huge fibroid in my cervix. It wasn't even in my uterus. It was in my wow. cervix. There was no you know, treatment for it. And it explained so yeah. much pain that I had been in for so long. And I was just like, get it out. Just yeah. get it out. Yeah. And I'm doing so much better. But yeah. there are also, you know, the thing is that I didn't have a healthy young body, right? Like I right. had I had kind of a messed up young body. <laughs> so even though, yeah, things are sli sliding around a bit, um, it's still so much better. But yeah, yeah. I started with the healthy body. No, you wouldn't do this to a healthy body. Right. And see, that that's the thing. I mean, when I think of hysterectomy, I think of um, it should be an operation of last resort or it should be an operation that's done when it's necessary to do. And as opposed to you have a girl who is in her late teens or early 20s and wants to be a man and so she wants to get rid of her uterus. It's like, that's a problem. Because yeah. she won't be a man. She will be a woman without a uterus. And I, you know, I, I can't, I also can't help but wonder when, um, when women go for these, these genital surgeries and the various interventions that they can get. I can't see how that would allow someone to have a healthy sex life or a sex life that they would enjoy. Sex can be complicated for women. 
And I know that it wasn't, I didn't have good, any, any sex that could really be called good until I was in my mid-20s. Because you have to learn how your body works and how your body responds to other people. And, you know, you have to learn how to, you have to learn how to have sex. If your anatomy has been messed around with, how are you going to learn how to interact with another person in a way that's pleasurable? You know, because these surgeries also tend, like one follows the other, follows the other, follows the other, follows the other. And so, and there's so much pain involved and so much, um, I just think of it as debility because how can you walk? How can you work? How can you actualize yourself as a person if you're having, you know, procedure after procedure after procedure after procedure in pursuit of something that is impossible? I think, I do think adults can do what they want with their bodies. The fact that teenagers are doing this is really appalling but um for me i think of a a general cutoff so to speak a cutoff age might be 25 maybe i mean that's still very young it's like yeah you can do you know do anything to your it's like it's your body you pay for it you live with it you're an adult um even if you you know maybe are not entirely well. Uh, But I think it's pretty clear that teenagers uh, can't consent to this. I agree. And this is another, another downfall of our society. Um, We are terrible at mental health. Yes. Terrible. I, when I was teaching, um, when I was teaching seventh and eighth grade special ed, my kids were supposed to see the school psychologist And they did maybe twice in the year. And they wouldn't go to their mainstreamed classes because they didn't have the social skills and they didn't have the emotional coping skills because they, um, you know, they were supposed to be mainstreamed since like fifth grade and they never went. And here they are in seventh and eighth grade. And I found out that one of them was hiding in the boy's bathroom instead of going to his mainstreamed class. And he was a very sweet boy, but he said the kids made fun of him. So he wasn't going to go. And, you know, it's like, you have to go. And he's like, I, you know, he said, I like you, Miss Davis, but I'm not going. It's like, okay, we have to figure something out for you. But there's no appropriate mental health intervention for these, for, for kids, the school psychologist may have been a lovely woman, but she wasn't allowed to do her job. The, they were running her all over the building and, you know, she was higgledy-piggledy here and there and everywhere. So she couldn't, she couldn't see the kids. She was there expressly to see. And, you know, I would think that if a kid is having cross-gender ideation, you might want to find out what that's about. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing, just a couple of sessions with the school psychologist or someone who knows how to talk to children and to find out where this is stemming from. And if it's something that's genuine, if it's something that's longstanding, if it's something that's a phase, if it's a reaction to trauma, just find out what it is. We don't do that. I've had some many very unfortunate experiences with the mental health industry over my life. I won't go into them, but 
I agree for other reasons that we do mental health very poorly in this country, probably most countries. Yeah. Although we're very good at making people crazy. We are very good at that. We are excellent at that. And then blaming the person with the psychological or the psychiatric problem for having it. Yeah. But what's what's extra infuriating about that is that you have plenty of clinicians who are competent, loving, um, skilled people who are prevented from doing their jobs. Um, my brother's a social worker, and we talk about this all the time. How he's managed to stay in the profession as long as he has, I I can't I can't imagine. We we've talked about how therapists can be scripted depending on who they work for. And if they're not in private practice, there are certain protocols that they have to follow in sessions and it doesn't always work out for the patient's benefit, but it allows the therapist to keep their job. So the system continues to run smoothly. Yes, it does, but not, but not well. Um, And that's another thing about, the trans issues that frustrates me. Um, you know, one of the studies I've been looking at has been um, uh, health issues that trans identified people have. And the definitions are, are very broad. The conditions that they consider chronic are none of the conditions that can be caused by being on hormones for years or from having genital surgery. And it's like that these are not health outcomes. These those are health outcomes that this population could presumably have. Why aren't you asking about that? And then for the mental health needs, I, I wonder about this this uh, uh, this affirmation model. Because what if you have someone who is an adult and they've been trans for a long time and they're comfortable in their trans identity or as comfortable as they can get, but they have Uh, trauma they've never dealt with. They have family of origin issues they've never dealt with. They have psychological issues that they've never dealt with. So what, how does the therapist work with them? Or is it just all affirming? Where, where does, where does the gender identity end and the person begin? I can tell you from my experience that you have to work really hard to find somebody who isn't captured by the idea of an authentic self or a true gender identity for them to be able to work with you to get to the problems that you're trying to trying to work on. Hmm. That's got to be frustrating. It is. <sighs> I needed a psychologist uh, or a therapist last year because I was suddenly alone all of the time, except for my cat. Sorry, Harley. And Mm -hmm. the isolation was really making me feel paranoid because Mm. when you uh, can see people and read their body expressions and look at them in the eye and, you know, lean over and say something quietly, when you can have all those Mm -hmm. sorts of interactions, you can kind of Mm. feel somebody out and and, uh, understand what they're about. But when you're alone all the time and the only interaction that you have is voice and you can't pick up anything, then Mm. it's really easy to start getting in this mental mode of, wow, this didn't work out for me. Is is so-and-so trying to, like, you know, for me it was, was so-and-so a bad manager or or is so-and-so trying to to get Mm. me? 
And mm -hmm. I really needed somebody to talk to me to say, well, maybe so-and-so is just a bad manager. <laughs> Uh, and everybody was going through a hard time too, right? So if, if you're not naturally a good manager, uh, the pandemic's a, an especially hard time to become a good manager, right? So, um, oh, I, I so when looking for a therapist, like I categorically excluded anybody who said that they work with gender issues. I made sure that I didn't find anybody who put like LGBT friendly on, on their profile. Like I, I did as much footwork as I could to make sure that I could talk to somebody who would want to talk about the thing that I just mentioned without trying mm. to, to, to uh, make it about gender. Because mm. I, you know, that's, that's separate from dealing with isolation and a difficult work right. uh, situation. Because I, I've had therapists in the past who see other, you know, gender dysphoric patients and that sort of becomes like the underlying theme of all of the conversations. And I want to be a multidimensional person when I'm talking to my therapist. I play in more than one key. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that also concerns me when we talk about teenagers with this. It's like, where's the rest of their self? Right. If, if this is so prominent, where is the rest of this kid? One of the things that surprised me when I was talking to the parents is that a lot of their kids have multiple interests. There, there's one girl who's a rock climber and wants to, she wants to be a professional flautist. And then there's another one who's also into like hiking and music. And I was like, well, hold on now, because that's a lot. That's a lot to be involved in, particularly if you're trying to play classical music at a high level. It, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it eats up a lot of brain space. And I was thinking, these kids have things that they can connect to. These are also activities that have a community. I mean, playing classical music can be somewhat isolating, but depending on your teacher, depending on what instrument you play, and you, know, you can certainly um, make connections with other kids. And the gender identity is really beside the point. And so my question was, how do they have space in there? Because there's so much going on with their interests and their activities. How is that not percolating down far enough? Like why, not that it should be enough in and of itself, but why is the gender so important when this is a child who obviously has other ways of connecting with the world? Like, what is, what is that? What is happening there? The parents seem not to know. So I'm looking forward to, you know, discussing that with them because I'm, I'm very curious about that. I can definitely relate to being 17 years old and wanting to be a gay man instead of a woman. Really? Oh, heck yeah. Oh my gosh. No, I relate to this stuff very well. I'm confident that if I were a teenager in this era, I would be, I would have persuaded my parents to trans me. Wow. And, that, and pretty likely that they would have done it in this climate, certainly in this town, what's happened in my college town. Yeah, I, I relate very much to to all this stuff. And uh, I would have been happy to have gotten a, mas a double mastectomy. 
Uh, I hated developing breasts. And I don't know if I would have fantasized about a phalloplasty, probably not. Uh, but the, the hatred of my own female body, I would have uh, totally been down with seeking to neutralize it. I, I feel so many things right now. It's, it's fascinating, but it's also just so sad. My it's, goodness. Yeah. I mean, I, sure, I, I had an eating disorder, right? Like every other woman in my dorm in college, it was just like par for the course that we all had eating disorders and didn't call it that. Uh, yeah. I, I was a teenager before the age of cutting. I don't think cutting would have really appealed to me, but yeah, I think transing would have. Yeah, I had a couple of friends who were cutters. I didn't get that either. Um, I did have, I don't know if I had an eating disorder, but I had definitely disordered eating. One of the girls in uh, in my classes actually went to the hospital for anorexia. And when she came back, the boys were just kind of all over her. And so it was like, <laughs> it was like, Oh, if you want boys' attention, you have to starve yourself. I have to say I did not embrace that wholeheartedly, but I had been a chubby little girl, and so weight had been a thing for me. And it was also a way to really irritate my my mother and, you know, to really, like, piss off the family. I never got super skinny. Although, wait, uh, let me rephrase that. In my mind, I was not super skinny. I have seen pictures of myself from high school and I'm like, oh my God, I was tiny. I had no idea. Um, That's dysmorphia. That's body dysmorphia. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's a picture of me where I'm 17 and I, it's graduation day and I've changed out of my dress and I'm wearing my, my, my t-shirt and my baggy shorts and I'm like, if that was my kid, I don't know if I'd be worried yet, but I'd definitely be getting there. Um, and it, we would probably have to have a discussion or two about how when you go away to college, you are going to eat every day. Um, it's, and it, it's so odd. Um, I still have some of the dresses that I wore then, and I look at them and I'm like, this is this this thing is small, okay? It's I, and I kind of talk to myself where I'm like, I don't know what you were thinking, but this is a small dress by any measure. But I didn't, I didn't hate my body. I had some issues with it, but I didn't hate it. Um, having the issues, like having some disagreement with it was difficult. Um, I can only imagine how mu- how painful it must be if you really hate it. And if you have to go around every day in a body that you really hate. I feel like I internalized that hatred. I feel like mm. I was taught, I was taught the hatred and I internalized it and I knew better. You know, I knew that I shouldn't, you know, I, I was, cognizant of some feminism i was mm-hmm. i was aware that women were objectified but yeah. it went in anyway 
And, and it was, yeah, being young is awful. It's just awful. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I survived. And it would have been so much worse if, you know, I had, I had added medical problems. I mean, I have plenty of problems already, but it's really freaking hard. And it is just amazing to me that people today say that, you know, oh, you're going through the wrong puberty as if, as if there's any right puberty you can go through. There's no. not, it's awful. Fortunately, like one of the good things about getting older is that you forget some of that shit. Um, but one of the things that I, that I still remember is that I would, I would start sweating. I was not hot, but I was sweaty. And my face would all of a sudden just seem to turn into an oil slick for no reason. It's, it's something hormonal because now that I'm having the hot flashes and the estrogen is going down, I, you know, it's kind of like my body's traveling like backwards in certain ways. Um, I would get like, my nose would, would get runny just for, for no reason. It's like, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'm fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's all this. And I'm like, what, what, just leave me alone. Stop doing things. Just stop doing things. You can keep breathing. You can keep digesting, but just stop doing things. No oil, no sweat, no runny nose. That's how I felt about menstruation for 30 years. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was definitely in the stop doing things. You know, it's like, can you show up for a day and then just so I know I'm healthy and then go away? When I was 17 or at any point in my life, I would have gladly... Uh, had a hysterectomy. I did not have, I mean, I had a, a map. But anyway, we're going, we're going, all right. Sorry, we'll no, get no, back. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I mean, I relate. That's why I, in my own way, I relate because I was going through changes also and it felt horrible. I didn't know how to uh, place it in any way. It didn't make any sense. It, it was usually you're in control of your own thoughts and, and, and mind and behavior. And, and when you're in puberty and you start having flashes of libido, uh, it's, it's like a, an animal mind taking over in, in some respect. And it's just a horrible feeling. My brother has told me that I've read it from other, other people. And it seems that boys go through something completely different than what girls go through. I mean, girls get, I, I describe it as feral and we get, you know, we have that, that meshing of lust and emotion and it can really derail girls. I mean, it, it almost derailed me, but I was too characterologically uptight and too vain um, <laughs> to let it, to just let it all go. But it was, it was very tempting. It seems that for boys, it's, it's like, it's like you, you become a tornado and it's like, that's that's all there is. Um, and I don't think for girls it's quite the same thing. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I thought, like, if I never date anybody, I'm not going to care. Because I was 13 when I went. And I was just like, nah. Like, he's cute. I'd like him to like me, but, you know, whatever. Bah. And then the following year, Oh, absolutely not. I, I fell in love with this boy and I was in love with him until I was 18. That was my life, my life, you know, because I was a girl. 
And girls will do that. Girls will fall in love and just, it's everything. And, you know, and I don't think it's like that for boys, but I think that from what I've been told, like the, the sex drive just hits like an illness. And it's like, it doesn't block everything out, but it really becomes everything. Like the, it's almost like the boy meshes with the, with the libido. Yeah, for somebody who doesn't like that, that's very distressing. <laughs> it's got to be. Wow. Yeah, I didn't like the girl stuff. I really hated it. It was so, what was happening to me, I mean, maybe I guess it's more, there was definitely like an emotional component of it, emotional libido or something. Mm-hmm. But I... I did not want that happening to me. You know, like I knew intellectually that this was not right. Mm. And uh, I was like, why am I like fantasizing about being rescued by some guy? Like, what the hell? Like, like I I would have both of the things at the same time. Like, um, and I would say that it continued like that my entire adult life. Like, for me, falling in love has never actually been pleasurable. Mm. It's been exciting. Uh, It's been stimulating. It's been, you know, I have felt very alive, but there's been an enormous terror component of it. Mm. And also just like, I, you know, something has just felt very wrong about it at the same time. Mm. And... Uh, it's a relief like menopause is such a relief for me because that has toned way down I'm glad that I survived all those years but I yeah I mean it's like and I have I I'm not opposed to people making these decisions like like I could have made a decision a reasonable decision I think in my mid-30s to get a hysterectomy then Um, I think I had had enough sexual experience. I had had enough relationships. I had had enough at that time to be wise enough then to do it. As it happened, you know, it didn't seem like it was an option. And it was certainly extremely discouraged. It's funny that, not funny, it's notable that you can do all this stuff now with the ideology of gender identity. Yeah. That it's like, you know, th- there's no limit to the things you can decide to do for that reason, as long as it's for that reason. But there are a lot of other reasons that people might want to, you know, uh, well, this is, a, all right, my weird thought. Not a lot of people, but some, but some men, I think, want to be eunuchs. But that's like, you know, preferable to being fully intact and and being driven mad by your gonads. Again, very small, very, very small percentage. Most men that I know uh, to them, sex, not just sex, having orgasms is like the most important thing in their life. Like that's (laughs) <laughs> all they care about. I remember t- telling a friend that I had a hysterectomy <laughs> and his main concern was, could I still have an orgasm? Like, and it was like, yes. 
<laughs> I'll never care about it as much as you do. <laughs> but yes. Uh, but it's like, this is like central to their whole existences. And anyway, I could just understand someone not wanting that just as in myself, I can really understand not wanting to be yanked around by my damn uterus. I, yeah. So, uh, but there's no option for that for people, right? Like it's considered disgusting and appalling and you need this gender identity ideology to justify any of that. And the people having this gender identity ideology are having ideas of totally unrealistic outcomes Whereas like, what if somebody wants like the completely realistic outcome of, yeah, your sex drive will like go super way down. That, that is a realistic outcome of some right. of the surgeries. Right. Um, I've seen people talking about that online and it's, I have to say it is inconceivable to me that someone would want that, but if they do, then that's fine. I, there have definitely been times in my life where it would have been better for me to be less attracted to somebody or to have the emotional, the emotional wherewithal to back away from that. But fortunately, those relationships didn't last terribly long, which is a good thing. But I, looking back now, I don't really regret it, but I'm thinking, ah, life just would have been easier without that. But I, I could see how someone who is not comfortable with their sex drive would be fine with having their organs removed. And I think as long as it's not going to have too much of a negative health impact, if you're talking about an adult, then go right ahead. Now, on, on another level, though, I don't want anyone to have that level of distress. And this is this is my personal take on it. I'm terrified of medical procedures. I was convinced that when I had the UFE, they were going to kill me. I, I'm still waiting to die from the, from the vaccine. I'm convinced that the dentist is going, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one person who has the stroke from the Novocaine. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea of willing, willingly submitting oneself to surgery um, of any type, um, unless it's to save your life, doesn't make any sense to me. But then I know that for some people, the level of discomfort rises to the point where they think, no, I, I will die from this, or I will not be able to manage myself if I continue to, you know, if I continue in my body the way that it is. I, I had a tubal ligation mm -hmm. when I was 33, right? So that's the surgery I had to be mm -hmm. uh, put under for that. Yeah. And it's an elective surgery. And um, so clearly I was like really into sex and having a lot of sex because I just mm. didn't want to have pregnant. I wanted to have a lot of sex. <laughs> um, but I really thought that like, well, this is definitely, I mean, it's invasive, but it's so preferable to the invasiveness of a pregnancy because mm. I, I, I did not want to have children. Right. Yeah. And I didn't want to have an abortion. And right. like all of that stuff was super invasive to me. So if I was going to be having sex, mm which I was. And then I had, you know, massive allergic reactions to non-oxanol nine and latex and all this sort of stuff. So my non-oxanol nine. I remember that crap. Uh, yeah. It was terrible yeah. for everybody. I couldn't use it either. It was awful. Yeah. So I, um, I was making myself very sick in my pursuit of both having sex and preventing pregnancy. So that was, 
that's an example of a surgery where it's not like life-threatening, but I was, for me, I was like, my God, this is the best med medical intervention ever. Like I right. was so glad that I had that done. Anyway, go on, Corinna. Sorry. Well, I was just thinking about Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, mm -hmm. how young people are not really developing resilience or uh, uh, very good coping skills. And I'm just wondering now, for young people who are going through puberty and whose bodies are changing in ways that they're not comfortable with, if they're not being taught these skills of like how to cope with things or how to be resilient or how to, how to deal with things realistically, I wonder if this uh, trans identity provides some sort of coping mechanism or outlet that allows them to recontextualize their experience of having their bodies change in a way that makes them feel like they have a little bit more control over what's going on. Mm. Uh, because maybe they're not getting enough uh, adult guidance. Interesting. Um, one of the parents that I'll be interviewing said that she thinks that for her daughter, the trans identity is a way to put off growing up. Um, because now there are questions about, if, is she going to go away to college? Like if she decides to take hormones, is she going to be able to get them? in college and maybe she doesn't want to go away to college just yet and she wants to start a transition at home and you know uh those are actually practical questions but they are questions that keep you tethered to your parents and one of the other issues that i have with the transition for kids is that it turns them into permanent medical patients and they have to you know they're they're tethered to the doctor's office when I mean, like I said, I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't even see, I, I, I don't even feel it anymore. So I don't even know where it is, but this is a ticking time bomb somewhere in my mind. I don't want to see any doctors. I just, I just don't. Um, so like for me personally, it's like, good God, I, I couldn't stand it. Like I would just, I would just nope out eventually. It's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going. I'm just, no, it did no, just no. Um, but if, as you said, Karina, it's about having some kind of control and a recontextualization of the changes their bodies are going through, it would be worth it to do whatever one had to do in order to keep that control and to keep at bay whatever it is they're trying to keep at bay. And I, I just think, you know, we were talking earlier about the difference between the transvestites and the transsexuals. It seems that um, one of the psychological differences is that for the transsexuals, they were actually moving toward a more authentic self because this is how they genuinely felt they were to be in the world. Whereas with the transvestites, it seems more like it seems more like a performance. It's more, you know, it's it's the putting on of something which you know, in a way is like moving away from their authentic self. That might be overstated, but I think that it's important to distinguish, particularly like for clinicians and parents and anybody who works with people on these issues to understand that it's not all, it's not all performance. There's, there are problems that are being solved by this identity 
And it could genuinely be the way that some individuals actualize themselves most honestly. And, but again, we're too immature as a society to have that conversation. So, you know, I do think, however, that these issues are absolutely fascinating and it's very important for the truth to be told and for us to be receptive to truth. I mean, regardless of what other people's opinions are, I also think that it's a big challenge for our society because we also don't do, we don't do gender well. We do gender stereotypes extremely well. We don't do gender and gender nonconformity or sex or we don't do women particularly well either. And men might be at the top of the patriarchy, but this doesn't serve them either. And I think that one of the opportunities in the gender fracas is to actually have these conversations and try to undo some of that and, you know, loosen it up so that more people are able to be comfortable and to not have so much pain in life, either within themselves or out in the world. Um, I, I do think this is an opportunity. I would hate for, for us to blow it. I agree. Yep. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. This Thank is really guys. a pleasure. You should oh, join us really? again if you ever have the time. I certainly hope so. You guys were wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And uh, thanks for listening, Turfs and Trannies. This is Heterodork signing off.